I want to focus on two key questions this morning, and they go together. Your answer to one, I think, should, must, determine the answer to the other. And they might seem very simple on the surface, but I hope to show you just how important your answer to these questions really is. The first question is this, why do you do what you do? Why do you do anything that you do? Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you go to work? If you have children, why do you parent your children? If you're married, why do you show love to your spouse? If you came to church today, which you did, in case you're not awake yet, if, 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 why did you come to church today? When you leave this place and you go to hang out with your family, why? If you have a hobby, why? Why do you do it? Why do you do what you do? And the second question is this. Why should we do what we do? Is there a reason that should be behind everything that we do? Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't have time for this. Like, I can barely keep up with just the things I have to do. I don't get to think about why I should be doing what I'm doing. I'm barely getting by, especially as we enter into the holiday season. And now you want me to focus on shoulds and and whys. And I don't have time for this. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning, you answer these questions all the time. Whether you do it purposefully or not, I'm not sure. But you have an answer to these questions, and how you answer these questions makes all the difference in the world. And I want to start with a story. It's one I've used before, but I like it, and I think it's funny, so you're going to have to endure it. (laughs) And it goes like this. A man is filling up his car at a gas station. And as he's filling up and kind of zoning out, he's looking off in the distance, and he sees some construction workers on the road. A pair, two guys, are working. They have the orange vests on, and they have the truck that says, we'll say, town of Greece or something. Not that this would happen in Greece, but hypothetically. And, and he's watching them, and he sees them. They each have a shovel, and one of them is digging a hole and throwing the dirt to the side. And then he moves on about 25 yards down the, the road, next to the, like in between the sidewalk and the street, and he digs another hole, throws the dirt to the side, And he moves another 25 yards. And the guy coming behind him takes his shovel and he takes the pile of dirt that the guy just just dug up and he puts it back in the hole. And he moves 25 yards down and same thing. He takes the pile of dirt and he puts it back in the hole. And the guy's watching this and going, what is going on here? So as he pulls out of the gas station, he rolls down his window. He says, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be rude, but I just have to ask. It looks to me like one of you is digging a hole and the other one is just filling it in. Am I missing something? They said, no, that's exactly what we're doing. It's his job to fill the hole, and it's his job, uh, to, his job to dig the hole, and his job to fill it in. You see, we are a three-man crew, and we plant trees. One of us digs the hole, the other one puts the sapling in, and the third one fills it back in. Why should two of us get the day off just because one of us is sick? Some of you are going to get this later. Some of you may have to explain it to the people next to you. They've lost sight of why they're doing what they're doing. Right? They've just narrowly focused on, I'm just a hole digger. I'm just a hole filler-inner. I think that's an official term. And, And I think we lose sight, too. I think we lose sight and we think the alarm goes off, so I get up. I take a shower, I brush my teeth, and then I have to go to work because that's what I do every day. 
I say I love you to my wife and my children because that's what I do every day. I show up to church on Sunday mornings because that's what I do every week. This is just what I do. And and we lose sight of why. What's the reason behind all of it? And that's what I hope to open our eyes to today and to challenge us with this. Now, again, this might not seem like a big deal, but let's make this practical. Let's, Let's think about marriage for a moment. The the reason that you are in your marriage makes a big difference in your marriage. What if you got married to make yourself happy? So this person makes me happy, therefore I love them and I want to marry them and be with them because they make me happy. Now, should a spouse make their spouse happy? Of course. There should be happiness in a marriage. It's a good thing. But if the reason, if the why, the answer to the why question to marriage is because it makes me happy, what happens when that marriage is no longer making you happy? Now we get to why the why question is so important. If you got into your marriage so that it would make you happy and you are no longer being made happy in that marriage, well, then you must have to seek your happiness elsewhere. Because it's no longer fulfilling its purpose in your life. Think about justice. Justice is a good thing. We want justice in the world. We want wrongs to be made right. We want crimes to be punished. We want justice. What if we seek justice for our own good? We call that personal rights. I have rights as an individual in this country. It is my right to do certain things, to be treated in certain ways. That's my right. And justice means I should get what I want. It is my right. Well, what happens when justice in society means that maybe I don't get what I want? What if it starts impinging on my freedom? Then what? What happens when justice isn't good for us personally? Well, then we must have to seek our happiness somewhere else. Think about a relationship with God. What if you believe in God, you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have faith in Him day to day in an ongoing way, you come to church to worship Him and to learn about Him. What if you're doing all of that because you believe that it will give you a happier, more fulfilled life? What happens when life is no longer happy or fulfilling? What happens to our faith in God in that moment? We might say, well, why bother? Why go to church if it's not making me happy? If the answer to why we do what we do centers on us, then the moment we're not getting what we want, we're going to have to go somewhere else. It becomes a fruitless search, like a hole that's just being dug and filled back in. And we say, well, uh, somebody's supposed to be planting a tree and they're not doing it anymore, so I'll just keep going through the motions to get what I want. Last week, we introduced this topic of to the glory of God alone, the fifth of the five Reformation principles that we've been looking at 500 years ago. Uh, celebrating when Martin Luther nailed his theses onto the door in Wittenberg and challenged the Roman Catholic Church. And we talked about the difference in looking at salvation as being all about us. What can I do? How can I earn it? Am I good enough? Am I not? And the Reformers coming along and saying, wait a minute, we're seeing something different in Scripture. And they weren't making that up. They were getting that from the early church and from Scripture as well. 
And they said, wait a minute, as far as we can tell in Scripture, God does what he does for a different reason. And that reason is not just for us, it is for his glory. We're not going to talk too much about that. That's what we talked about last week. So if you missed that subject, I encourage you to listen to the sermon online. But today we're going to move away from specifically why God works for his own glory to what difference does that make for us? Because I raised the issue last week that when God works for his own glory, that actually is best for us. And so I want to pick that up today and talk about what is it, what benefit do we get from God working for his own glory? So I want to start in Scripture. I want to look at what is it that Scripture tells us that when God keeps his glory as the reason that he does everything he does, what happens? Because we asked last week, is that selfish? Isn't that just selfish of him? Well, let's look at the incredible benefit that comes to us from God's glory. I'm going to be putting a lot of of scripture up on the screen here. You can follow along in your Bibles if you want, um, or you can just read it off of the screen. It's up to you. Genesis chapter 1, looking at verses 26 and 27. Right here in the beginning, in creation, we're told a lot about why we should do what we do. We're told about why we are created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Then God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's so much in these two verses. We could spend weeks just on this passage, and we're not going to do that this morning. But what I want to focus on is this concept of being created in the image of God. If you read through Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, there is a pattern. God did this. God said this. And it was good. God created this. And it was good. And this pattern goes on for five days. And then you get to the sixth day, specifically to the creation of humanity. And the pattern changes. Intentionally. And when Scripture does that. When there's a pattern that becomes broken, it is like lights flashing and bells ringing saying, hey, listen up, this is important. God wants to make sure you get this. And what he wants to make sure that we get is this concept that we are not created in the same way as anything else in creation. We are created in God's image. It doesn't mean we're little gods and goddesses running around. It's not what it's talking about. But it means we are able to reflect who God is more than anything else in creation. We have a choice to live for his glory. You were created to reflect the glory of God. In fact, just looking ahead here, that's what I want to impress upon you today. The fact that God's answer to the question, why does he do what he does, is he does so for his own glory, should be the answer to why we do what we do. We are to do all things for his own glory. We exist to display the glory of God. So get this. God created all things for his glory and specifically created you and me and all of the people throughout all of history. And he did so for his own glory. So ready? Benefit number one that we get from God working for his glory is we exist. We got created because God keeps his glory foremost. We're going to come back to that passage in a moment. 
Let's look at Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. God is dealing with the Israelites here through the prophet Isaiah. And the Israelites, as often happened in their history, as still happens with us today, uh, they were off track. They were ignoring his commands. They were going their own way. And he, he was lovingly, gently, sternly, coming alongside them through the prophet to draw them back. And he says this to them in chapter 48, verse 9. He says, my own name's sake, or for my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold back from you so as to not destroy you completely. Now that might seem really harsh. But when God entered into the relationship with Israel, on Mount Sinai, through Moses and the giving of the law, he was very clear, this is what the relationship is to look like. And if you do not obey, all sorts of bad things are going to happen. Well, here was Israel, and some bad things were happening. But I think some of them were being tempted to think, well, because all of these bad things aren't happening, God must not really care. And and God says, no, 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 you have it all wrong. I am delaying my wrath. I'm delaying the judgment that you deserve because of your sin. I am delaying it. And he says why he's delaying it. And he says it's for my own sake. So here's number two that we get from God seeking his own glory. You ready? We get mercy. When God seeks his own glory, we get mercy. That's a very good thing. The other thing we get in the same chapter, just a verse or two later here, it says in verses 10 through 11, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Understand what this is saying. Throughout the history of Israel, God cared for them. He loved them. He nurtured them like a good shepherd with his flock, like a father with his children. He cared for them. He taught them. He instructed them constantly. He revealed himself to them. Now, it would be tempting to say, well, he did that for their sake. That's partially true. But the greater answer is found right here. God loved them for his own glory. So so here's the third thing we get when God works for his own glory. We get taught and refined and lovingly corrected. We see this also in verse 18, which looks at it from kind of the opposite view here. I'm sorry, in verse 17. It says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. Actually, that was going along with the previous verse. Then we go to 18. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. I'm amazed at this because what God is telling them is that you have failed to live for my glory. You have gone gone your own way and sought your own personal happiness instead of my glory. Now, we would think if you seek your own personal happiness, you should get your own personal happiness. But what he's saying is the exact opposite. See, this is what sin does. Sin comes in and twists what God says and what God does, and it turns it back on us. God says, you want true happiness? Seek my glory. Sin says you want true happiness, seek your own happiness. Do what you want, how you want to do it. 
And God comes along and He says, if you would have just trusted me, if you would have just listened to what I said, you would have the peace that you are so at work for and working so hard for. So we see that when God seeks... Oh, one more. Sorry, this one's important. Isaiah 43, verse 25, going back a few chapters. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. God says he is saving his people. Why does he say he's doing it? For his own sake. Are they getting benefit from that salvation? Absolutely. If you are here today and you are saved by Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity in God's holy presence, enjoying and worshiping his presence forever. That's a pretty big benefit, right? But God says the reason he does that is first and foremost his own glory. So when God seeks his glory, we get life, we get mercy, we get leading and instructing, and we get salvation. So what difference does that make for us and how we are to live? Look back at Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he goes on and he gives them a command. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. You see, the image of God gives us our purpose for living. You are created to reflect the glory of God. We are to live in such a way that displays, demonstrates His glory. The command then that follows tells us how. And He says that we are to use everything that God has created. We are to be stewards over it. We are to work with it. And everything that we do with everything that God has created is to be done for God's glory. Have you ever had a boring picture of heaven? I mean, how many people just have this picture of heaven that we're going to have white robes and fluffy feathery wings and, and a golden halo on our head and this this silly little instrument in our hands that we'll be strumming and and we'll be sitting on fluffy clouds for eternity, just, oh, God is great, God is good, and that's it. And man, sign me out. Like, I don't want it. That sounds really boring to me. And then some people become more mature in their faith. They say, no, that's silly. We're all going to be standing as a choir, unending, just singing and singing and singing. And some of you are like, I hate singing. Like, that's not a picture of heaven for me whatsoever. I think here in Genesis 1, we have a pretty good picture of heaven. See, what this is telling, what God is saying to humanity, is I have created each and every one of you for a purpose, and that purpose is to display and reflect my glory. And I've put you into a creation, a place, an environment, and I've given you all the stuff that you need and you can use to display my glory. I also believe from Scripture that one of the things that is clear is that He has created each and every one of us different. I am not an artist. I can't paint to save my life. I can't sculpt. Can't do it whatsoever. That would not bring glory to God at all. I love playing guitar. I love picking up my guitar and just playing for hours on end. And I hope that that brings glory to God. I love using it to lead you guys in worship. I love preaching. I love being up here. For some of you, you would hate to be up here doing what I'm doing right now. For me, I'd hate to be down there listening to me. So that's, you know, it works out well. Don't don't raise your hand in agreement. It's okay. Right here in Genesis, 
God gave this command. And I believe this is a picture of bringing glory to God in eternity. And he's saying, if you are an engineer, if you are, are, are scientifically or, or technologically minded, I have made you to take the stuff in creation that I've given you and to use it and to work with it and to come up with things like machines, cars, computers, rocket ships. I think God saw all those things. Those aren't just weird things that happen because we live in a fallen world. I think those are things that happen because we bear the image of God and we are creative people that can use the things that God created us to do. But but notice this. We live in a world infected by and infused by sin. We have brains and bodies infected by and infused by sins. So we can't do what we were created to do as well as we're going to be able to do it in eternity. So my picture of worshiping God for eternity, I hope, involves some singing. I do, because I think that's pretty awesome. But I think you're going to be able to wake up every morning, take the stuff that God has made in the world around you, and work with it, and use it for His glory. And if that's what you're going to do in eternity, let's start practicing now. Let's live our lives that way now. Psalm 115 verse 1 says this, Not to us, but to your name. Be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. That is a challenge that we need to hear in our world today. Not to us. I am not to live for my own glory. You are not to live for your own glory. We don't participate in our our weddings and our marriages and in parenting our children or coming to church for our own glory. And and by that, I mean wrap it all in there, your own happiness, self-fulfillment, all of it. That's all me-centered. The Bible says we are to live God-centered. It makes all the difference in the world. We see this because God seeks his own glory in everything that he does. When he does that, we get incredible goodness out of it. And I believe the same is true when we live for God's glory. We actually get more goodness in our life than if we were to seek our own happiness. I want to talk about the glory of God today. Because we looked last week at history, the Reformation time, and what was going on between Luther and the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. We looked into Scripture to say, is this something that Scripture teaches? We looked this morning to say, okay, how does that apply to us? But now I want to talk about our culture today. What does it mean and why is it necessary to live for the glory of God alone today? I want to show you a headline from an article on CNN that I found this week that I thought was, was shocking. CNN is not a bastion of, of conservative values in any way, shape, or form. Okay, but look at this article. There's a massive moral vacuum in the country right now. This is a liberal news organization, not Christian at all. As far as I know, I don't know the author. Maybe he's a Christian. I don't know. doesn't appear to be. But think about that title right now. Now, this is an article about things that are going on in Hollywood with the abuse that's been brought to light, ongoing abuse from people in power to people under their power, and now coming out among politicians as well. And and this is a horrible thing. Not that it's coming out, but that it happens. It's a good thing, I think, that it's finally coming out, and hopefully some things will be done about it. And I want to be careful here, (laughs) because... 
people have been hurt. And and justice needs to be done, and these people need to not be hurt. But what I want to deal with is somebody writing an article like this. Okay? There's a massive moral vacuum in the country right now. What are morals? If we have defined right and wrong as doing what makes you happy, and I believe that is exactly what our country and our culture defines right and wrong as, how can you write this article? How can we take any of these horrible, abusive people to court, and they should go to court, and they should be punished, but how were they not doing what made them happy? You see, we have a slippery standard of right and wrong. And we like applying in one sense, well, you shouldn't have done this because it was wrong, but in another sense, somebody says this is wrong, but it makes me happy, therefore I should be able to do it. How can you say there's morals and judge against that? And how can you say there's a vacuum if we don't even know what those morals are in the first place? Even in our world, where God has been removed and our own personal happiness has been put in His place, there's still a a part of us that is shocked at things like this that happen and should be rightfully hurt because these things are going on. And if I could suggest, it's because we were created in the image of God. And there was something in us that cries out and says, this is wrong. But here's the thing. It shouldn't be surprising. It shouldn't be surprising at all. We've so redefined morals that they're based on our own personal happiness, which change with the whims of our world and our culture and our media, rather than being based on the eternal weight of the glory of God. We've taught our kids to seek whatever makes them happy. And then we wonder why they grow up to be selfish adults. We have an entertainment industry that says we should be entertained by stories, plot lines that are filled with indecent, immoral things. Characters on the screen that do indecent, immoral things, one after another after another, and they're held up for us to be entertained by it. And that same industry wants to be shocked when those same people on the screen are doing those things behind the screen. By what standard? Part of what's going on in our world today is also coming out of Washington. And our elected officials are being accused. And some of them are coming out and saying, yep, this is true, I treated that person that way. Why are we surprised? When we elect politicians based on their idea, or the idea, that morality doesn't matter. When we know that somebody has a long history of not telling the truth and abusing women and abusing their power and their authority, and then we put them in positions of power, and then we want to act shocked when they keep on living the way that they lived before. And friends, as Christians, we are guilty of this just as much as anybody else. Living for the glory of God matters. It matters for us as Christians. It matters for those that we support. We are here to live for the glory of God. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
because I want to talk about what this looks like in our life. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, this is coming in chapter 12. There's been 11 chapters in Romans talking about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that God has saved us, not by our own doing, but through Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place. And he goes on and on and on talking about how this is true, what it means for us. And then he comes here, he says, because this is true, because God has sent his son to die for you and you are made righteous in him, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Friends, we, we look at Christianity so narrow sometimes. We say as a Christian, we shouldn't lie. And that's true. We shouldn't lie. Well, therefore, I'm going to stop lying. That's good. We say, well, I've struggled with swearing. And as a Christian, I shouldn't swear. And that's good. Okay, I'll stop swearing. That's good. And we deal with things piecemeal. Well, I'll just work on this habit, this thing in my life, and I'll change that around, and I'll, I'll do something better, and I'll just keep working and working and working and making myself better. That's not what this is talking about. This is saying there is a pervasive pattern in this world that is caused by and has at its root the sinful rebellion of humanity that twists the very purpose of our creation and our existence, turns it back on ourselves and says it's all about us. And then we live in light of that. That's what it's talking about. It says quit conforming to that. Friends, this challenges everything that we do. It challenges the reason you get up in the morning and why you get out of bed. It challenges that. It challenges why you go to work. It challenges why you're married to your spouse. It challenges why you're here at church today. Why do we do what we do? We are to do what we do as an act of worship to the Lord God Almighty. That changes everything. Live a life of reflecting the glory of God. Think about it. Think about marriage. Go back to one of the illustrations I used earlier. If your goal in your marriage is to be happy, as I said before, then when you're not happy, well, go somewhere else. But what if the goal in your marriage is to bring glory and honor to God? And in that moment, your spouse just isn't really making you happy. Can you still bring glory to God in your marriage? Absolutely. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm trying to bring glory to God in my marriage and, and it's not making any difference in my spouse. You're not doing it to change them, are you? You're doing it to bring glory to God. Keep on loving your spouse. You're raising your kids and you say, well, I'm not getting through to them. They're just rebelling. They're not listening to me. You're not doing it because you're God in their life. You're doing it to bring glory and honor to the one true God. Keep parenting them for the glory of God. So I've been coming to church for a while now. I'm just not getting anything out of it. I'm just not feeling it. I'm not feeling happier in my life. That's not why you're here. I hope you get something out of this. I do. And there's other churches maybe that will help you to get more out of it. I don't know. But at the heart of it, it should be about living for the glory of God. Are you growing in your relationship with Christ? 
Are you growing in your application and understanding of his word in your life so that you can bring glory to him in your life? Living for the glory of God changes everything. I want to close with another story. It's one of my favorite stories. I think it's one of the first stories I ever shared when I I started preaching here. It's a story about an author named Annie Dillard. She writes in a book called Teaching a Stone to Talk. It's a book about teaching people to write. And she writes about being on a writing retreat in a camp, or a cabin rather, out in the woods. And, And there's no lights on. She just has a candle on the desk. And she's writing or journaling or something. And as she's writing, she notices moths begin to kind of orbit around the candle as they do. They're drawn to the light and they're just sort of fluttering around. Every once in a while, one gets a little too close. And it lights on fire. And and she's very descriptive, much better than I can be. But she talks about the whole room just lights up momentarily as as this moth catches on fire and, and flashes really bright. And then it falls on the table and it burns out and it gets dim again. She said this went on and on. But then she talked about one moth. This one moth, it it did the same thing, but instead of just catching the the candle on on sort of a flyby, it flew straight into the candle and got stuck in the wax. But the same thing happened. It lit brightly on fire. All the little bits and pieces of the moth kind of burned away. Room got really bright and then it got dimmer. And she thought, well, that's the end of it. But then something amazing happened. That body of the moth drew up the wax from the candle. And it became a second wick for that candle. And and the parts of that moth and who it was and its own existence, all that got burned away. But she said, my room was brighter with two candles burning now. And she said, the moth burned and burned until I blew it out. Friends, what are you living for? I'm guessing some of us are tired today because we've been living for ourselves. And we flash and we burn really bright and we do the Christian thing and the prayer thing and the Bible thing or or we just do our own happiness and we seek our own happiness and and it just, and it disappears. Sink your life into the glory of God. Listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves you for his glory. Read scripture that says you were created for his glory. Look at how God treats his people for his glory. Be consumed with the glory of God. Let it burn away all of our selfish motivations. And may we burn brightly for him. Because otherwise, we're just getting up in the morning and digging a hole. And somebody else is filling it in with very little meaning or purpose at all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that in your infinite wisdom, you always keep in your mind that which is most important in this world. And it is hard for us as selfish humans to accept that what is most important is your glory. But God, we live in a world that is sought to replace your glory with so many things. And we live like like a little paper boat just being tossed on a stormy ocean. And we need the weightiness of your glory. 
the firm foundation of the reason that you do everything, the reason you created us, the reason you save us. We need to live for your glory in all things. And I pray, Father, challenge us. This is not an easy thing to listen to and and to be challenged with. It confronts our innermost motivations for what we do. And we don't like that. But I pray may we be challenged by the power of your word and the greatness of your glory. And may we not only now in this moment as we are thinking about your word, but as we go home and as we get up tomorrow, may we remind ourselves, I live for the glory of God. We pray this in your name. Amen.